Welcome to the Inner Christianity Podcast, where we engage ideas, movements, and worldviews from a biblically Christian standpoint. Today, we'll be talking about Calvinism. So if you're embedded into evangelicalism, you likely know of at least some of these famous pastors, John Piper, John MacArthur, Mark Driscoll, Matt Chandler, Tim Keller, and David Platt. They all have one major thing in common. They're all proponents of a theological system called Calvinism. The popularity of the system was on the upswing in the late 90s into the 2010s in a movement called Young, Restless, and Reformed. While it seems like that movement has slowed down a bit as the young are now more like the middle age or old, Calvinism remains a very popular system. It has also been very divisive, not only because Calvinists themselves often have a reputation of being combative, tribalistic, and condescending, but because even non-Christians find their theology of salvation offensive. Many Calvinist pastors and theologians declare or at least act like there is no other plausible way to read scripture or honor God other than to hold to the tenets of Calvinism. So some of the questions that we'll be asking and talking about is, is it true that Calvinism is the unavoidable conclusion of a responsible reading of scripture or are there other legitimate alternatives? What are the pros and cons of Calvinism? And does this debate even matter in practical ministry? So with all that said, I think it's important to establish why this conversation even matters. Like, what's the point of talking about this? Because there have been like endless circles of conversations regarding Calvinism. So for you guys, what would you say? I don't think it's so important that it determines salvation, obviously. I think when people go that far, that's not being very charitable. That's honestly just straight up forgetting the gospel like there's nothing in the bible that says you must believe all these particulars of a system in order to be saved i will say that it does affect how you read scripture as well as how you do things like evangelize that's not to say that one side or the other doesn't believe in evangelism both you know if you're a calvinist or not or not you, you believe in evangelism but it does affect like how you share the gospel the words you use and we'll get into that later and it also changes how you might answer certain questions like the problem of evil. Um, but that's kind of where it it's limited to. You know, I would never say that this determines anything like orthodoxy, like other kind of subjects that we've covered, like progressive Christianity, obviously, is going to be much more of a serious threat to orthodoxy than anything we're talking about right now. Yeah, so I would say in terms of this debate, there's a lot of clarity that needs to be added because every seems like every generation of Christians, they'll be introduced to this topic. And I think some people kind of know what's going on, but some people don't. And so you always have this ambiguity involved. I remember when I was in China and a group from the northeastern part were saying that, oh yeah, we had these people come talk about Calvinism. We had no idea what it was. And so I think it's not that this has to be a worldwide curriculum, but it just seems to be current for some reason. Like every season, it's just, it was just very current and, and people are just curious about it. So I think there definitely needs to be some clarity there. And so people can have easy access to it and also try to process that information. Yeah. And I think it also impacts how you pray for someone's salvation, like different aspects of like free will and how someone is saved and things like that. But today, since we're short on time, we won't get too deep into that, but we'll kind of just more so talk about the soteriological system of TULIP, 
which is like the acronym that classical Calvinists use to talk about what they believe. And so that's kind of the famous thing that people know is TULIP. We're actually just going to jump into that aspect of Calvinism and kind of go through each letter and define each letter, but also talk about what Calvinists say and then what are some pushback or thoughts against that. So does anyone want to give just a brief history before or is that relevant? <laughs> yeah, we can just say like Calvinism, mm -hmm. if you don't know what it is, never heard of it. It stems from the, the Protestant Reformation, which is why many people refer to it as Reformed Theology. Mm -hmm. um, it gets its name from the theologian John Calvin and then was more fully developed later by other Reformed theologians. It's not the only theological system that finds its ancestry in the Re Reformation, but it has the label of Reformed theology. And so I would say classical Calvinism usually has two major tenets. One is that God's sovereignty as divine determinism. So God causes every single thing that happens. So if you are going to eat cereal in the morning and you're making a choice between Frosted Flakes or Cheerios, God determines that decision in some way. And so they have a different view of free will, usually called compatibilism, but this is probably not a topic we're going to delve into today. As Angela said, um, we're going to talk more about TULIP, which is their soteriological system. That's how they explain salvation. Yeah, for now. Yeah, let's start with the T, total depravity. Yeah, so I will um, play the role of the Calvinist, even though I'm actually not one. So as we go through these, I'll try to do my best to put my Calvinist hat on and defend these doctrines. So the T in TULIP is total depravity, as Angela said. This idea that people are spiritually dead. So a common refrain that many Calvinists will say is, dead means dead. So they appeal to passages like Ephesians 2 when it says you are dead in your trespasses. For them, they try to take that more literally than other Christians would. You know, all Christians agree you're spiritually dead. But then what does that mean? For them, it literally means a spiritual corpse. So you'll hear a Calvinist like, you know, the late R.C. Sproul, um, people like John Piper say things like, hey, if you're dead, like you cannot respond. This idea that I share the gospel to you and then that person makes the decision to respond or not, that's not really the case because imagine if you try to talk to a, a literal dead body and you're like, hey, you need to get up. It's like, no, obviously the, the dead body is dead. It can't respond. So that's why it necessitates something that God does. And we'll talk, we'll talk about those other letters later and see how, how it all kind of ties together. And so another way people describe the T is total inability. You are unable to actually respond to the gospel. Yeah, so I'll be representing a separate view, although I'm not maybe Arminian, but just contrary to the Calvinist view. And so I think something that, for me at least, is if the body is dead and totally unresponsive, it does seem that people have the ability to worship false gods. So maybe not the God, but false gods. It's interesting to me that they would worship false gods because if they can't worship the God, then they shouldn't be worshiping anything at all. So I, I guess in my mind, worshiping a type of God shows that there's something in their hearts that realizes that something created them, someone created them, and they're responding to something. So I guess for me, that's that's why I have trouble maybe understanding like what if it's really dead and unresponsive, then how is it able to worship other things? So I guess that's kind of one of my questions. Yeah, I think the typical Calvinist response would be that 
the idea of spiritual deadness is still an analogy and the analogy breaks down at some point. I do think you bring up a fair point, Z, that, you know, if you're if they're trying to use the illustration of a literal dead corpse, I mean, a dead corpse can't do anything, can't even sin either. <laughs> so um, it's that's it's a fair point. Uh, but I, I will say that Calvinists are probably just trying to say, like, it's ultimately an analogy of what it means to be spiritually dead. And obviously, a spiritually dead person can still sin. But the idea is that they cannot become alive without God initiating something in them to make them alive. I see. So even if they're worshiping false gods, they're still dead. Spiritually yeah, that's, dead. and that's what it means to be spiritually dead. Yeah. I see. Okay. So what would you say to that then, though? L let's say a person is spiritually blind. So instead of spiritually dead, spiritually blind to God, it does say in Romans 1 that you know, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. So that's why people are worshiping false gods, because they attribute creation to someone. So they worship the sun, stars, animals, whatever. And so if I'm using the spiritually blind analogy, when you see people that are blind, their other senses are heightened, so to speak. So for me, it's if a person is spiritually blind, their other senses are heightened in a sense that they're longing to see, but they can't. So they're finding substitutes in which they think are leading them to the light, but they're not. So that to me shows that there is a some kind of sensibility there where they're trying to find God. Because if I'm spiritually blind or dead, I wouldn't have the ability to even begin to search for these things. But I think the yearning for it, and even when you see the spiritually blind man on the side of the road crying out to the son of David, they had faith that God would heal him, but they couldn't see him. So I think, I think a lot of times for me that God just worked on their heart, well, they're blind. So how could they see? Well, they had to have faith. So I guess those are the interesting things for me when I, when I read through the New Testament. It's interesting that you bring that up because, you know, there are different analogies that scripture uses to talk about lostness, right? People who are not yet saved. And blindness is one. Spiritual deadness is another. Many Calvinists who are very strong in their Calvinism, they will say things like, people naturally hate God. So they'll use Romans 1, the idea of people suppressing the truth that they know God exists. They'll use that to try to make the argument that people are so against God, they're not even searching, you know, unless God is making them alive somehow already. So they would actually deny, you know, what you said, but you did bring up some interesting biblical counterexamples of like, oh, are people actually seeking God? They'll actually say, no, people are not seeking God unless God is already regenerating them somehow. You know, they'll refer to John chapter six, like um, no one comes to the Father um, unless, or no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. So they'll use passages like that to be like, hey, no one is really searching unless God is already reeling them in, so to speak. So isn't the idea, like even Arminians think to some point, some degree that God is the first initiator? Well, everybody does. Right? Yeah. yeah. So everyone believes to some degree that God initiates first. Mm -hmm. The difference, though, is that Calvinists believe that God chooses, and I guess that could maybe go into the second point, but God chooses or selects, predestines few to respond back to him. But Armenians or other systems believe that to some degree there is a choice to responding to God. Like all people have that choice, right? Wouldn't that be the distinction? Yeah, so contrary to popular belief, Armenians, which is a system that is usually portrayed as being opposite of Calvinism. Classically, um, Arminians actually hold to total depravity. 
they agree on this point. What they differ on is how it's solved. So, yeah, you know, you have a bunch of people who are spiritually dead and they're totally unable to respond to the gospel. So how does one become able to respond to the gospel? This is kind of skipping ahead later to irresistible grace. But the idea and how Calvin has solved this is the idea that regeneration precedes faith, meaning you're born again before even having faith. Like logically that comes before having faith. So when you're born again, you're made alive. So going back to the analogy of a dead corpse, let's say you bring a dead person alive, then they can realize, oh, like I I do want this bread of life or whatever. So that's why they have faith. Arminians, they will have this idea called prevenient grace that the Holy Spirit somehow takes away, washes away the effects of original sin so that people are not totally unable to respond. But you still have to respond. And that occurs when you hear the gospel. Other Christians, like traditionalist Baptists, they'll say all that stuff is unnecessary. People being in sin doesn't mean they're completely unable to respond to anything. So like the power of the word itself when you share the gospel is enough such that people can respond. But, but of course, everyone thinks that God first initiates salvation, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It just, right. Like, how does that just, look? Yeah, right, between different to what things? degree? Yeah. Okay. Okay, that's, I think that's good enough for T for now. And then let's move on to the U, which is unconditional election. So Calvinist Isaac, what would you say is unconditional election? Well, if I'm going to play a Calvinist, my name shouldn't be Isaac. It should be okay, John. Okay, okay. John, yeah. okay, John. John. There's so many Johns that are that are Calvinists. You know, okay. John Calvin, John Knox, John, John Piper, Edward. John MacArthur. Yeah. Okay, uh, John. Not, but not John Wesley, though. John Wesley yeah. was an Armenian. <laughs> he is an exception. Anyway, so unconditional election. So, you know, referring back to T, remember, all these people, everyone is dead in their sins in this almost literal way. So God's going to now choose who is going to be saved, who's going to be regenerated. So this is his elect. Um, The idea is that not even faith is a condition by which God chooses people to be saved. Uh, Most Calvinists would say it's not arbitrary, like it's not like God pulled names out of a hat, but it's also his mysterious will such that why he chooses some individuals and not others. And And they'll try to push back on the idea that this seems unfair or unjust. First of all, they'll say everyone is a sinner, so deserves damnation. So the fact that God chooses some to be saved, the people who are not chosen, they have no cause to complain. And then the people who are chosen have no cause to boast. So that's kind of the idea of unconditional election. Um, Election is not exactly the same as salvation, but those people who are elect, they will eventually be saved in some point in their life. So I find election to be interesting because I see it more as those who are saved who are part of the church are part of the elect. So for me, it's not so much if God's choosing some and not choosing some, it's just those who have believed are now part of the elect. And I also think when you speak of election, it, it almost seems that God is very impersonal, almost like a Muslim God where he's very distant, right? He's very transcendent. He's not imminent. And he's just doing this. And then we have to credit it to his mercy but we're not able to credit it to his love or his compassion. And when you see Christ on earth and he's serving people, he's always serving the ones who are weak, right? The ones who cannot fend for themselves. But he's also healing people that you wouldn't think he would heal, 
So the centurion servant, the Syrophoenician woman asking uh, for her family member to be to be healed. And so you, you start to see like, if God is so impersonal, why would he do those things, right? Why would he be moved to compassion to heal or save people? So I think to me, there's an element of emotion that's removed if it's unconditional election. And it also is difficult for me to process like, yeah, I think if he's logically choosing some, then it follows that he would also be choosing some not to be saved. And to me, that's really hard because then you're saying God's literally condemning people to hell and they never had an ability or choice or chance to leave that. So I think that's that's a problem for me. Yeah, I think for some of that, a Calvinist wouldn't necessarily disagree in a sense of, like, yeah, like God chooses people that you wouldn't expect. Whether or not God has emotions is a different debate about divine impassibility. It doesn't matter whether or not you're Calvinist in terms of how you catch that out. What they would say, though, is that it's not so much, especially if you're a certain kind of Calvinism, God is like, you're going to be saved. And then you over here, you're going to be an object of wrath. It's more like God looks at this sea of people who are lost and spiritually dead. And he's like, I'm going to save some of you and pass over the other ones. And for some Calvinists, they think that's a little bit better than a strong double predestinarian view. And, you know, they'll use text in terms of supporting unconditional election, like Ephesians 1, when it says um, in verse 4, just as he, God, chose us in him, that's Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. They'll point to text like that and see, we were chosen before the foundation of the world. It had nothing to do with us before we ever existed. And that should be, in their eyes, something that is celebrated, not something that's like, oh, that's not fair, because it's like, how gracious is the Lord that he would save any of us? And he chose me, and I know that has nothing to do with me, so I have no cause to boast. So um, R.C. Sproul, in his book, I think it was the book Willing to Believe, he said when he debates other Christians on this topic, he'll ask them, like, why are you saved and not someone else? And they'll be like, well, because I chose. And he'd be like, well, he's like, are you saying that you're better than this other person? That you, because you're a more moral person, that's why you're saved? And they'll be like, no, of course not. You know, I, I didn't earn my salvation. But it's like, oh, but you said that you made the right choice to believe in Jesus and the other person didn't. And so he argues, you're basically saying you merited the merits of Christ because you're pointing to your faith as to why you were saved and not the other person. And so for Calvinists, they'll argue, this preserves grace. This is why they often call TULIP the doctrines of grace, much to the annoyance of people who are not Calvinist. And they'll say like, yeah, because it's purely grace that you were chosen has nothing to do with you as a person. And that's why it's something that's all credit to God and no credit to us. Yeah, and I, I think that's interesting when I think about people being chosen or not, and you, you think about the angels and the devil. It, it almost seems... As if the devil had no chance. He he had to be the guy. Judas had to be the guy to betray Jesus. And so you have these, I guess, people who are set up or angelic beings that are set up throughout time to show the glory of God. And so that to me makes it, makes it kind of weird. It's like, why would God need to do these actions to glorify himself more by sending people to hell or making them take the brunt or whatever? It, I guess for me, it doesn't make sense that just to elevate his glory, these things have to be done. Because if he's already so full of glory, then these acts are kind of pointless to me, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're bringing up something that many Calvinists will 
also use in terms of different kinds of God's glory or different avenues that God is glorified. So God is glorified, of course, in his saving of people, choosing of people, shows his grace. But then they'll also argue that God is glorified in his wrath towards the reprobate, meaning that they are objects of wrath because it shows his justice. And then they'll say, yeah, both of these things glorify God. It was in God's interest to show his glory in different ways. You know, they'll point to things like Romans 9, where the potter can make people into whatever he wants. He can make them objects of wrath, or he can make them objects of glory. And so they'll just say, like, yeah, that's fine, and that's God's prerogative. And they'll quote Paul in Romans 9 saying, who are you, old man, to question God? And that's kind of how they'll often leave it. And, and I can I can totally understand that God has the ability to do, I guess, whatever he wishes in terms of you know, his sovereign ability. I guess for me, when I'm thinking about that, it's kind of interesting what he says in Psalm 148, that he doesn't really need people because even the rocks will cry out to worship him. So it's like, if he doesn't need people, then why would he send some to hell just because he decided to do that? You know what I'm saying? It's like not even the rocks, if they could worship God, are being sent to hell. But this person who doesn't have a chance was just created to go to hell. So I guess for me, that's it's like if he's if he needed glory, he states that even even the rocks will cry out to him, even creation will cry out to him. So I guess for me, it's like why create people then to even elect or save? Uh, there's a lot there, and that's why Calvinists have that reputation of being condescending because it's like, are you saying you earn salvation? How dare you? you know? The glory of God and like all that. Um, Holy Deo, Deo Gloria, they'll kind of yeah, yeah. That so Latin it's, phrase. <laughs> yeah, it's like um, argument debate traps. But anyway, so it's just funny, like because I've definitely had those conversations and was that person. So, <laughs> um, but with that, yeah, I think it. There's both like, yeah, God can do whatever, and He still be good, and like all glory to Him. But at the same time. Like this aspect of, but he doesn't do that. There's other passages, I think, I forget where, but it's like, God desires all to be saved. So it's like, he desires all to be saved, but he can't save? Where does God's power in that come in? Oh, Um, yeah. So most Calvinists, in my mm -hmm. experience, when they're dealing with all passages, like 1 Timothy 2, Uh um, or passages that talk about the world or whole world, so that would be like John 3.16. Yeah. They'll say all does not mean all. And in fairness, even in English, all or everyone can be constrained by context. So if I told you like, oh, I was watching a football game and the two teams started fighting and everybody cleared the sidelines and like started going onto the field and punching each other. Obviously, in that context, I don't mean everyone on the entire planet. I mean, everyone in both teams. Right. So they're saying like all does not mean all. All means something like. The elect or something? Yeah, the scattered Mm -hmm. elect, all nations. So like Mm -hmm. God desires all nations to be saved. So that's why they're very big on like every nation and every tongue. There are going to be some individuals from each of them that Mm -hmm. are saved, but not everybody. Now, some Calvinists, they'll they'll try to not massage what those passages say. They're like, okay, it does mean all. Mm -hmm. But they'll say like, God might desire all men to be saved, literally, But there are other competing interests that God has, including showing his glory in other ways, like we talked about showing his wrath. So even if God desires all men to be saved, 
that doesn't mean that he doesn't have other reasons to not save them. And then there are some people like Charles Spurgeon who just be like, okay, I'm a Calvinist, but I read these passages as God desires all men to be saved. And I have no idea how to make sense of that. I'm just going to, mm, like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just He's preaching scripture. Yeah. More honest. Yeah. Cause like the context is like, yeah, I, I get that contextually all doesn't mean all in some cases, but it seems like the context in scripture, when those verses are said is pretty clear that it means all. So at least R.C. Sproul is more honest and saying, and like seeing that and saying that. I mean, that was Spurgeon. 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 Or Spurgeon, sorry. Spurgeon and saying like all means all. Like I respect that. So, um, so I think, yeah, be honest with like those aspects. But when we have to start redefining terms to fit our system, I think that's where I have an issue with Calvinism. But uh, with that, let's move on to the L, limited atonement. Maybe yeah. the most controversial letter? Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. So there are even some people who argue that John Calvin himself didn't hold to limited atonement. He maybe did. It's a little confusing because I think his in his Institutes of Christian Religion, it does sound like he holds to limited atonement, but then in, in his commentaries, it sounds like maybe he doesn't. In any case, the idea is that Jesus died only for the elect. Okay, so he paid for the sins of only certain individuals. Scripturally, they'll try to point to passages where it's more specifically talks about Jesus dying for his sheep or his church. So they'll point to John chapter 10, the passage of the good shepherd, as well as Ephesians chapter five, as it's talking about marriage, how Jesus laid down his life for his church, right? It doesn't say everybody. They'll point to those scriptural passages and then they'll use arguments like John Owen's famous trilemma argument. It's also called the double payment argument. So John Owen, another John, by the way, <laughs> he made the argument like, okay, here are our three choices. Jesus died for all the sins of all men, some of the sins of all men, or all the sins of some men. There's actually a, a fourth choice, some of the sins of some men, but no one believes that. And no one believes the second choice I listed either. So just boil it down to all of the sins of all men or some or all of the sins of some men. But then he's like, isn't unbelief a sin but if unbelief is a sin and you argue that jesus died for unbelief but people are still being sent to hell for not believing then that sin is being punished twice over and that is fundamentally unjust so why it's also called the double payment argument that's that same sin is being paid for twice since that's unjust god can't do that so the only choice is all of the sins of some men and they'll also like to use terminology that the atonement has is actual, it's definite. So that's why some people, some Calvinists like to use the terminology definite atonement rather than limited atonement. But definite doesn't really fit TULIP as well, the cool acronym they have. And so they'll say like, hey, Jesus actually accomplished salvation on the cross. He didn't just make it possible. That's a kind of weaker version of the atonement. He actually achieved it for his elect. And so that's how they'll defend limited atonement. Yeah, actually, a lot of the verses we talked about earlier kind of reference this, right? So he desires all men to be saved, First Timothy 2, verse 4, and then First John 2, 2, he's the propitiation of the whole world. And so we've already touched upon that a little bit. But I guess for me, when I think about Christ dying and being able to pay for all the sins of everyone, it doesn't mean that everyone is now saved. So 
in my mind, it's like if every person was given a blank check, if you write an amount on it, God is able to, in a sense, dish out whatever you're asking for. So if you were to write on that check a billion dollars, God could pay for that. But if you choose not to write on it, then you can't claim anything on it. So I guess my thing is like God's ability by sending Christ to die on the cross, it had the the sufficiency to pay for all the sins of the world. But if you don't cash in on it and ask God to you know claim you from sin, then he's not going to. Because for me, it's like the ability for the the man to interact with the divine, it's not so foreign to me. Because if it's constantly God just interacting in his own circle, then yeah, you know, we're just why be people, right? We're just a bunch of zombies being put in his kingdom, worshiping him. So I think for me, like, hey, like he can give you a check, but if you don't write it out, that's that's on you. So I guess for me, it's that's not so strange to me. Like he has the ability to cash you out, but if you don't do it, then you're gonna stay stay in that state. So I don't I don't know how convincing that would be for Calvinists, but I think for me that's just how I see it. Yeah, and to take my Calvinist hat off for a little bit, you are touching, I think, a little bit on what some critics of the double payment argument bring up, like David Allen, who's a theologian from our seminary. He uh, argues that Calvinists take the atonement as purely like transactional in like a financial sense. And that's how they cash out the double payment argument. But, you know, there are different ways you can view that analogy. It doesn't have to be strictly like I paid someone's debt and then now they're making someone pay the same debt again. You know, it could be in a way you said, Z, like, oh, I kind of have an infinite provision for everyone. Whether or not it applies to somebody depends on their choice. And so that's one way you can look at it. And it doesn't seem to be as immediately contradictory or incoherent. And some Calvinists, they'll use the terminology because they don't, nobody wants to say that Jesus's blood is limited in value, right? No one wants right. to say that. Right. So they'll say, no, Jesus's death was sufficient for everyone, but efficient for the elect. The problem with that argument is that John Owen's trilemma argument, if Calvinists use this argument, and not all Calvinists do, but many do, you can't say that. Because John Owen's very argument says, if it's sufficient, it's efficient. So Jesus's death can only be sufficient for the elect, or else everyone's going to be saved. And also, so let me bring up too, because Z brought it up for 1 John 2, 2, which is often considered one of the strongest verses against limited atonement. So mm-hmm. Calvinists have no choice but to deal with it, which says, Jesus died as a propitiation for our sins, but not ours only, but also for the whole world. Mm-hmm. And they will try to make parallels with John chapter 11, when Caiaphas, the high priest, says about Jesus that he's going to die not just for us, but for the scattered children abroad. And so, People like John Piper make the argument, hey, since these have similar sentence structures and written by the same author, John, what John meant in 1 John 2, 2 was not for ours only, meaning people maybe who are currently saved, but also for the scattered elect abroad. So he's arguing that contrary to what it might look like, that verse does not teach that Jesus died for the sins of everybody. So that's kind of the argument they'll use to try to get out of First John 2.2. 2. Mm-hmm. Does that sound plausible to y'all? For me, if limited atonement is true, I think it causes more complications and problems in general for the gospel. Uh, you kind of mentioned this earlier, Isaac, is like when you're sharing the gospel to someone, 
Like you can't really say that Jesus died for you, like in your sins. Because if it's limited right. atonement and only covers the sins of those who are saved, then technically Jesus didn't die for that person that isn't technically well, elect or saved. Well, you mm-hmm. don't know. So so Calvinists right. will try to defend evangelism and say, hey, we don't know who's elect. So right. we, we're supposed to preach to everyone. But you are right that if they're going to be consistent, they shouldn't say Jesus died for you because they have mm-hmm. no idea. So some Calvinists will actually explicitly say, you shouldn't say that. You should instead say, Jesus died for sinners like you. The implication is yeah. may- maybe not you, but like you. <laughs> and so that's to make a more, it more general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, make a more general <laughs> statement. Yeah. Yeah. So that for me, I'm like, man, I don't know if that's what the gospel or the Bible teaches. And it does feel like a lot of work to make like that passage, like the similar census structure and blah, blah, blah. Like it just feels like there's so much work to be done to make the system work as a whole instead of being more honest and balancing the different sides. But I think that's a good enough covering of L. Let's move on to I, irresistible grace, which is pretty like straightforward that God's grace is so good and so amazing that you can't resist it. You can't deny it. That once the Lord chooses you and shows you his goodness, like that's it. You're undone and you're all in. That's how I would simply put irresistible grace. Is that fair, John? <laughs> Have you heard the Christian pickup line? Like, hey, your name must be Grace because you're irresistible. Oh, gosh. That wouldn't work on you? Nah. <laughs> like, like, then your name isn't Grace. You're very resistible. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> My dreams were shattered. <laughs> I'm sorry. So... I will say that when it comes to irresistible grace, Calvinists do not want to have this picture of God dragging someone, kicking and screaming into heaven, like Mm -hmm. against his will. Yeah. So sometimes they'll prefer terminology like effectual grace or effectual calling or something like that, meaning that this kind of grace is, like we talked about earlier, bringing dead people back to life. So they have no choice in the matter. Now, there is an idea of common grace, meaning there's grace given to everybody, like, you know, the sun shines on everyone's faces, rain comes down, whatever. But this particular kind of grace, saving grace, is irresistible. And again, going back to dead corpses, you know, no one goes up to a corpse and he's like, hey, please get up. So God doesn't go and ask a dead body. God just does it. He brings this person back to life. And when they are brought back to life, they immediately see the goodness of God and put their faith in Jesus. So that's how they cash out irresistible grace. Yeah, I don't have too much of a problem with this one. I do think if it's categorized as effectual calling, it's, I guess, more precise. So if the gospel is being preached, then the grace of God should be irresistible in the sense that people should be believing or more likely to believe. And if they don't, then I think that's why effectual calling makes more sense, that when God does draw you, then it's effective. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. again, I don't have too much of an issue with this. If you recategorize it, maybe I'll add a second point to Calvinism that I hold to. So Yeah, and it sounds nice. It's just like the only problem I have with it is like this idea that it's just a nicer way of saying you're forced. Or like you have no choice. I I think it just kind of makes it nicer and like sounds sweeter, which is fine. But 
it's still like forced in some sense. Well, but... it does depend too on whether or not you agree with how they describe spiritual deadness. Right. Okay, yeah. So, so it's all connected to that, the other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, then you probably have less reason to believe in irresistible grace. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it connects and it makes sense with the system. Yeah. Then let's actually move on to P, uh, perseverance of the saints, and just wrap it up. Uh, yeah. So this is basically the idea that if you are elect, then you will endure to the end. There's no mm-hmm. losing of salvation. Uh, we talked about this issue, eternal security a few episodes ago. Uh, That's really it. So P is probably the least controversial, though of course not all Christians believe this. Some Christians believe you can lose your salvation, but this is Calvinist saying, no, you cannot. If you're genuinely saved, you will not apostatize. And if you do apostatize, that Mm -hmm. is proof that you are never saved to begin with. Yeah, I don't have too many issues with this either. So this is probably the only solid point that I hold to. (laughs) Yeah, same. I would say the, the interesting thing, though, here, and this is kind of where some Calvinists might struggle, John Calvin himself struggled with this because, you know, you see people who seem to be so faithful, but then at some yeah. point in the future, they turn away from God. Calvinists do want to hold to P because they're saying this gives you security in Christ, like gives you confidence that you're not wishy-washy with your salvation. You're not wondering, oh, am I saved? You know, mm-hmm. that, you know, many Christians actually struggle with that. But mm-hmm. then... John Calvin, as he was dealing with this issue, he's like, well, God allows them to do that, to give us examples of inconstancy so that we see those bad examples and we don't do like they did. But then, of course, that leads to the natural questions like, wait, what if I'm one of those examples of inconstancy, <laughs> right? <laughs> How do I know that? And yeah. so it kind of is an interesting uh, puzzle for people like John Calvin. Oh, man, sounds exhausting. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a good general summary of each side to the letters. And again, you don't have to hold to all five. You can be a three, four point Calvinist, or in Z's case, one point Calvinist. I mean, are you really a Calvinist anymore? (laughs) Exactly. And so just call me um, Cal for short because I can't hold to the all five. (laughs) So, yeah, I think that was a very thorough summary. Let's kind of go generally critiquing Calvinism. Like, what are some positives and what are some disagreements or criticisms just generally that you didn't mention before? Yeah, I could start off with this one. So I would say the positives are Calvins are trying to protect their theology, and I can respect that. And they've done a lot of good work, especially in areas that are more liberal. So along the West and East Coast, you have really strong reform traditions and you've got Keller up in New York, right? You've got MacArthur out in California. I mean, these aren't the only people, but mm-hmm. in a lot of these areas where there's a lot of progressive Christianity, they've kind of battled that, stemmed the tide a little bit. But I think when you get entrenched into it and, and your mindset is, oh, we have to fight this, you become more polemic. So every everyone is an enemy to your system. Everyone becomes an enemy to your position. And and that's why I think sometimes, you know, moving to a negative is sometimes it does seem to be more combative than usual. You're just like, hey, we're, we're all Christians. We're just trying to conversate about this and just discuss this, how we can mm-hmm. become more robust in our theology. And you just kind of have people getting angry or upset at you. So even in seminary, when I first walked in, people weren't asking for your names. They're just like, are you Calvinist or Arminian? I was like, bro, my name is D. <laughs> I don't even have a you know time to understand what these things are yet. But if you give me uh-huh. some time, I might be able to talk to you about this, you know, but... 
my name is Z, you know? And so mm. not to say that everyone's like this, but you kind of get this feel that they think the system's superior to, to others. And so I think yeah. that there's a lot of hermeneutical issues here because when you start defending your system, you're going further and further away from scripture. And I'm not saying they're not biblical, but the more you have to defend a point, the more you're defending your system and not necessarily what scripture is saying. And it's okay mm -hmm. for people to have different hermeneutical thoughts, right? Interpret it differently. That doesn't mean they're wrong. But I think when you're so sure that you're right and you explain everything away so simplistically, I think that's a problem. It's like, oh, you know, all doesn't mean all. Oh, no, no, this means this. And I was like, well, how do you know? Like, did you invent grammar, syntax, and language? Like, are you, <laughs> were you alive during Koine Greek or Hebrew or, you know, Aramaic? Like, my goodness, you must be so excellent in all the, in all the languages, right? So it's just like, not that they're not humble, but I think when you, when you really believe in what's right, you do have a sense of confidence, right? And so mm -hmm. I wouldn't say they're all arrogant, but I do think sometimes in discussing their system of theology, we all need to have a sensible like mindset and this heart of humility because how are you going to reach others if your attitude's like that so mm -hmm. so i guess that's that's all i have to say for the pros and cons yeah what i would say is that you know we shouldn't try to ascribe to them just bad motives calvinists really believe they're protecting things like grace they're safeguarding the idea that no salvation is by grace you didn't earn it you can't boast they also consider themselves defenders of god's sovereignty and they also are very biblically centered. It doesn't mean that I think they're, all of their interpretations are right, but that they do care a lot about what the Bible says. And so, you know, those are, I think, strong points of Calvinism. I do agree with many of the things Zeph and I said about their pros and cons. You know, I do think that sometimes Calvinists do a poor job of accurately and charitably representing other positions. For example, you saw how I even though I'm not a Calvinist, how I try to portray Calvinism in our discussion. And I try to be like, okay, Calvinists say this. This is what mm -hmm. Calvinists believe. Trying to accurately represent what they're saying. While often when I hear Calvinists, when they talk about other systems like Arminians, like, oh, Arminians are just, they just believe you earn your salvation. So it's a kind of Pelagianism. I've heard Calvinists say things like, Arminians are just trying to be God. <laughs> and it's like, wait, you're, you're just ascribing these kind of bad motives to people just because they disagree with you. And so they're not able to really understand and accurately represent other positions. And then they teach their people in this way. So then now you have, you know, let's say like a, a, a Calvinist youth pastor who's super into Calvinism. He just straight up teaches Calvinism to his kids. And then they grow up to be Calvinists, but they have no idea what they're talking about, of course. And it's kind of interesting how much they insert into their readings of scripture and their teaching because mm -hmm. you know i taught college ministry for nine years even though people know me as a critic of calvinism sometimes i've written some articles against it when i'm teaching through the bible very rarely does calvinism even come up i'm not trying to sit there and insert my theology in every way i can i'm just trying to teach the text and so i find that to be the opposite issue with calvin the calvinists are like trying their very best often to kind of insert their little theology in their text. I see that a lot when I've even listened to famous pastors like John Piper. So that's kind of where I would have some critique. I don't think their answers are the best on certain things like the problem of evil or when it comes to evangelism. There's a clip of John MacArthur answering a question in a Q&A session where someone asked him, hey, given limited atonement, why are we supposed to evangelize? Mm -hmm. And he goes, that's a good question. <laughs> he's like, I'm not entirely sure, but he's like, you know, we're supposed to do it because it's Jesus's command. 
But that's basically all he could say, and that's all many Calvinists can say. Like, you just do it because Jesus commands it. But I feel like if you reject things like limited atonement, you have a greater, fuller picture of why you should evangelize, which is, you know, God desires all men to be saved. And so we should also have that same desire and therefore preach the gospel to everybody. And I think that's missing in Calvinism, and I think that's unfortunate. Mm. Um, and I won't get into it too much, but I think some of the readings of 1 John 2, 2, as well as, you know, how they defend regeneration preceding faith, like in, from passages like 1 John chapter 5, I think those are all not mm. very good arguments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I would say something that Calvinists do well in is protect and elevate the sovereignty of God and the nowadays people would attribute like the wrath of God as like a bad thing or uh, something that they don't like but Calvinists are able to talk about it in a way that is better than just oh like just because God does this he's evil but it's like no like God can do this and so it's like a more holistic view of God so I appreciate that in an age where it's just like all about God is love God is kind like all that it's like they have a, I guess, more balanced view in that way. So that's like, I think some positives that I admire, I guess. And also when it comes to salvation, a positive side to that is that God can change anyone's heart then to some degree. God can save anyone then. And like, for me, it's like praying for that people I love, I can have full faith that, oh, God can save and will save this person. But at the same time, the negative then is like, but I don't know if they're chosen. So the other end, is I I have no idea. And so there's no hope. So there's that. (laughs) Yeah, I think similar with Isaac too. It's like the problem of evil is actually one of the biggest reasons why I kind of calmed down on the Calvinism, uh, just because it felt like there weren't ways to just or explain why without attributing the evil to God himself. That for me is like, I can't go there. And I don't think it makes sense to go there. And I think Calvinists have to go there though because of their view. And maybe I hope we can have an episode on the problem of evil just to kind of hash it out more there. So I won't Mm -hmm. go too deep into that. That's kind of my critique and kind of where I stand. So I think there is value in both, like not to be extreme, but to yeah, hold scripture first and then kind of see how we can balance that out, but also be okay with the mystery that comes with this idea of free will, of God choosing, of us responding like, yeah. Yeah, and to piggyback on your point on the problem of evil, and the problem of evil, that can be a very complex issue regarding Mm -hmm. free will. There's a kind of a related critique of Calvinism that Calvinists cannot believe that God loves everybody. Now, I would say most Calvinists affirm that God loves everyone, like people like John Piper, D.A. Carson will say that, Mm -hmm. but they'll just try to like define it a little differently. But if you hold to the idea, like Thomas Aquinas, that love is not only desiring union with somebody, but also desiring their highest good, then it doesn't seem like if God is unilaterally reprobating people that he loves those people based on that definition. And what's interesting is that there are some Calvinists, like an old Calvinist theologian named Arthur Pink, that they'll say, yeah, God doesn't love everyone. Why are we saying that? God loves his elect, hates the reprobate, and he has every right to to be that way. And, yeah, that's an interesting, <laughs> interesting position that I think has some scriptural problems, but yeah. they're kind of, they're trying to take their system to its logical end. Right, right. Yeah. So that's, I guess, why we say, oh, like, at some point, the system has to fall or the system has to give, especially when it comes to scripture. 
And sometimes Calvinists will double down and like go to the end with the, yeah, the logical conclusion of their system. But I mean, everyone does that all the time with their own system, Armenians. And so it's not just Calvinists, but I think sure. they're just the, the louder, <laughs> the they're more passionate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but with that, that was a lot to handle, a lot to digest and a lot of big words and theological terms. But part of the podcast was to hope to build theology and to like promote a deeper study and like knowing and being familiar with these things. So hope y'all were able to push through that. Are there any practical things that you guys feel like is needed to talk about or is that a good enough wrap up? I just say, regardless of whether, what side you you're on, if you're a Calvinist mm-hmm. or non-Calvinist and you're someone in ministry, you have a teaching position, teach in a balanced way. Try not to straw man the other side and misrepresent them. I see that a lot. It might preach well to have like a bunch of slogans, but they're usually not very good arguments. So be charitable in that way, be nuanced, and then you can have intelligent discussions with Christians who disagree with you. Yeah, and so I think that requires a lot of research, the ability to do work on both sides, not just to read what you like or what you're interested in, but to read different topics. So not just about Calvinism or Arminianism, but making sure that in all aspects that you teach, that you do so with an open mind, but also solidifying yourself in the gospel and what you believe it to be. Yeah, I think that was well said. Uh, we thank you so much for listening to the Inner Christianity podcast. We welcome any disagreement, any questions, any add-ons. We love to hear it. Uh, if you also want to be a guest, <laughs> that, like we're open to that too. Like anything you're passionate about, we we're just so open to that. Uh, We love conversations. So thank you so much for listening and supporting. Have a great week and see you next time.